It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the last Media Buzz Meter of 2020. And won't we all be happy to bid farewell to this awful, horrible, no good, very bad year? Goodbye, au revoir, sayonara, get the hell out of here. Hoping things are better in 2021. I'm going to just take a moment here to wish everybody who listens to this podcast or reads what I write or watches me on the air a a very happy new year. I'll be off for New Year's Day tomorrow, but back in the saddle on Monday. But we will be live Sunday morning, 11 Eastern for Media Buzz. Uh, You know, we don't uh, take any time off when it comes to that program. You know, a lot to reflect on here in the year, but every day it seems, because the COVID numbers, uh, I've made this point before, the COVID numbers are getting hard to wrap your brain around, right? 338,000 Americans dead. Just look at the numbers for yesterday. 229,000 new cases in the United States and 3,808 deaths just in that one day. Just yesterday, that's almost 4,000 Americans a day. I think that might be the record or very, very close to it. Uh, And so, you know, it's like, you know, reading about famine in Africa or how many people died in a tsunami or an earthquake. You know, when the the numbers go really high, you know, there's a sort of a human defense mechanism where you make it more abstract. So for me, um, specific examples of people who have gotten COVID-19 or have died from COVID-19 kind of humanized the story. I mean, I talked yesterday about this congressman-elect from Louisiana. Yeah, some people took shots at him because he didn't, wasn't a big proponent of masks, but so what? I mean, come on. When somebody dies, a guy is 41 years old and has a promising career, that's not the time to sort of kick him around, I don't think. Anyway, it kind of makes me mad. But for me, you know, being of a certain generation, to read about the death of actress Dawn Wells, who played Marianne, on Gilligan's Island, um, you know, and I mean, it's a half a century ago, obviously she was much older, but to see that Marianne from Gilligan's Island has passed just, you know, humanizes it or brings it into sharp relief. Also, Dr. Drew the other day uh, said that he'd gotten COVID-19. I was not aware of that. I somehow missed this. Drew Pinsky. Uh, he was in the middle of a little bit of a flap that he had to clarify because uh, he posted on Twitter, this is just um, three days ago, that he'd gotten tested, he said, good times, wishing for COVID, since this virus is not fun, stay well, wear a mask. Um, and then somebody went on the line and called him an a-hole, uh, and he ex- explained, uh, hoping for COVID so I achieve immunity, it can go back out and take care of COVID patients without risking getting sick. Uh, but then he did test positive for COVID, and now on Instagram, he has clarified, uh, I believe yesterday, saying, I put out on Twitter that I was thankful to get or wishing for a COVID positive test. If I did not have COVID, I had acute lymphocytic leukemia, which I did not want to have because that's the only thing that would do what was happening to me. So Dr. Drew's saying a better alternative to have COVID only because he thought the alternative might have been worse. So we wish him well. Uh, before we get down to business, you know, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, it seems like everything they do uh, makes news, at least in the UK and increasingly in the US. So they, I've talked about before, have this, you know, zillion dollar podcast, 30 million pounds, according to the Daily Mail, uh, on Spotify. And they just did the first episode, a half hour episode. And the headlines naturally were that it didn't rate very well. Uh, initially charted in 17th place, below a podcast 
designed to send people to sleep with whale noises called deep sleep sounds. This is in the UK after it was released uh, on Tuesday afternoon. So it's like, wow, they can't even draw, they can't even outdo deep sleep sounds, whale noises. But then if you read another paragraph or two into the story, it turns out it then went up to number seven for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. I guess they still have that title. Uh, and they've got a lot of their famous friends to uh, appear, including Sir Alton John, Brene Brown, Deepak Chopra, Stacey Abrams. Uh, so that's one of the advantages of being a very rich celebrity without having to have royal duties, which is you can get your rich and famous friends who are just sitting around because they don't have anything else to do, to join your podcast, and then you can market that and uh, get sh- you can go beyond the whale sounds. I think that would be my goal. I never want to be behind the whale sounds. Then you have to question what you're doing. All right, let's get serious here. And in terms of the vaccine, there is some, are some pretty big problems with the distribution uh, of these vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine in the United States of America. Uh, and there's no getting around this. And um, after Joe Biden uh, ripped President Trump uh, for these problems, um, the uh, health officials, the federal officials who work on Operation Warp Speed, um, held a news conference yesterday to play defense. And they acknowledged, they acknowledged. Here's uh, Mansaf Slawi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He's a scientific advisor to Warp Speed, saying, we agree the number is lower than what we had hoped for. We know that it should be better, and we're working hard to make it better. So the administration itself had set a goal of 20 million Americans being vaccinated by today, the last day of the year. Actually, according to the latest figures I've seen, it's about two and a half million. So only about 10% of the goal has been met, a little more than 10%. Now, and that's only obviously in the space of two to three weeks if you go back to the starting date with just the Pfizer vaccine. But nevertheless, it's a big disappointment. Uh, About somewhere between 11 million and 14 million doses have been shipped out to the states, so even the 20 million didn't get out there. And look, if the Trump administration is acknowledging it's a problem, uh, then it's a problem. And even if those who are denying it's a problem are just not dealing with reality. Now, in fairness, and I actually said this on Fox this morning, um, the media give President Trump absolutely no credit, absolutely positively, had nothing to do with it. It's just these brilliant scientists at these great companies for rushing out this vaccine when just months ago, everybody was like, the experts would come on the air and say, no, it's a joke, no way, no vaccine this year, it's a fantasy, uh, it's a wish list, uh, and there's no way it's going to happen. Well, it did happen. And politically speaking, the president deserves some credit for that. Now, if he deserves some credit for that, then he also has to take some responsibility uh, for the initial rollout problems. Uh, He says now he tweets it's all the state's fault. But you do have to say that the states, to be fair, share in the problems because they're trying to get it to hospitals and medical clinics. That would seem to me to be not that hard because that's what hospitals and medical clinics do. They're set up to do things like give people shots. Getting it to nursing homes, I can see being a, a greater challenge. And the whole idea of trying to target these uh, vaccines to the most vulnerable populations makes an awful lot of sense to me, except it means more bureaucratic red tape and paperwork. And if next we go to people over 75 or people over 65, then you've got to come in with proof of age. If it, people with some sort of pre-existing conditions, then you've got to prove it. I mean, there's one school of thought if you just, you know, if you let CVS and uh, um, Walgreens give the shot to anybody who comes in. I mean, they'd be overwhelmed, I suppose, at the beginning. 
but at least you'd be making sure the vaccine got out there to more and more people. Anyway, this is a problem. It's got to be solved. Now, um, some federal officials say there's a reporting lag, so maybe it's actually more than two and a half million. We'll see about that. They also say, look, uh, the places that are handling this don't have any experience with how to freeze it, how to store it. And so some doses are being spoiled. Um, and they all, you know, that, that these are, this, this is to be expected with a brand new program. It's of a gargantuan scale. I mean, we're hoping, I mean, Biden has set a goal that in the first hundred days of his administration, um, 100 million vaccinations will be um, put into the arms of Americans who need it, which would mean 50 million Americans um, would get vaccinated. So it's going to be a struggle. And it's just not, um, you know, you know, it's so fabulous that we have these vaccines, but you can't just snap your fingers. Uh, states have set aside doses to give to their long-term care facilities, and that's an effort that's going to take a long time. So... I'm hoping for better. I'm hoping for better news in 2021 in a lot of ways, but I'm really hoping that this ramps up in January so that we can get this life-saving vaccine to more and more people who need it, rather than reading these frustrating stories about bureaucratic delays, not enough vaccine shifts, states not having enough money. Now there is one thing where the states are pleading with Washington to give them more money to aid in the vaccine rollout. And Biden is promising more money for that as well. But some of the money is in that $900 billion COVID relief bill that President Trump was supposed to sign Christmas Eve, didn't, wanted bigger stimulus checks. So that got delayed. So it takes time, even after the president a couple of days ago signed the bill, um, you know, it takes time for the checks to be written and for the checks, the money to be distributed to the states. Unfortunately, government can move very slowly, even in a life-threatening situation. So we hope that improves. Um, meanwhile, we have the question about the $2,000 stimulus checks that the president belatedly, after both the House and Senate had passed a $600 check compromise, has insisted on. And so the Washington Post says Mitch McConnell has sort of made it official. There will be no $2,000 stimulus checks in this Congress. One of the reasons is the ticking clock. And I've talked about this before. On January 3rd, so that is Sunday, the day that my show airs, a new Congress is going to be sworn in. It's actually going to happen just after my show at noon Eastern. Uh, the 117th Congress will be sworn in. That means that any legislation begun by the outgoing Congress automatically dies, automatically dies this Sunday. So that only, let's see, today uh, is Thursday, tomorrow's a holiday. But even if they worked on New Year's Day, uh, you know, it's only four days, if you count today, um, to work out some kind of deal. So what did Mitch McConnell do? Mitch McConnell, in order to help his Georgia Republican senators in the runoffs next Tuesday, uh, wanted people to be able to vote for a $2,000 stimulus check so they could tell their constituents, hey, I did it. I want to put more money in your pocket. But in reality, he killed it. There's just no question about it. He killed it. This is a very canny legislator who knows all of the routines. What did he do? He gave a speech on the Senate floor saying he would not be bullied into action, despite the fact that the president of his own party says he wants $2,000 stimulus checks, that congressional Democrats have already passed the $2,000 stimulus checks, and even some Republicans in his own party, uh, in his Senate, uh, want more generous payments. But what, did he did, what he did, what McConnell did, was he bundled it with two other things that the president also wants. One is the reforming, or the abolition, I should say, 
of the legal immunity for Twitter, Facebook, and other the Silicon Valley giants that play the social media game. And that's certainly legitimate to debate, but when you roll it in with a few days left in the session and say, well, if you want $2,000 stimulus checks, you've also got to approve this. And finally, election fraud, which you, he, McConnell knows. He knows in his sleep the Democrats are not going to go for creating some bipartisan commission to, to spend the first few months of Biden's term investigating whether or not the same claims that have been uh, uh, rejected by I think the figure is about 70 different federal and state judges, that there was widespread election fraud. It hasn't been proven. Supreme Court wouldn't take the cases. The uh, state courts, the federal courts below the Supreme Court level haven't said there's any proof. Um, The president continues to insist there is proof, and that's why he's pushing this January 6th. Let's uh, not certify the election results. I'll get to that in a few moments. So McConnell stands up. And he says, the Senate's not going to be bullied, here's the full quote, into rushing out more borrowed money into the hands of Democrats' rich friends who don't need the help. He said the $2,000 checks as a standalone bill had no realistic path to quickly pass the Senate. Now, he actually, I think, is right on that. I, I think there's enough divided sentiment among Republicans in the Senate, even if every Senate Democrat went along, that you probably couldn't pass it on its own. But you certainly can't pass it if you throw an election for it. I mean, that is the poison pill to end all poison pills. Um, so this is now about positioning. It's about finger pointing. It's like, well, I wanted to do it, but the Democrats would turn the blind eye to election fraud. Uh, for McConnell, the Senate is not going to split apart the three issues Trump linked together just because Democrats are afraid to address two of them. Well, I don't think Democrats are afraid to address election fraud. They love talking about this stuff because they think it shows um, President Trump just out of touch with reality. And I do think some Democrats are willing to entertain the idea of either reducing, if not eliminating, legal immunity for the social media giants. But you're not going to do it in a handful of days with the COVID checks at stake. So here's Nancy Pelosi uh, punching back at a news conference and blocking it. They are in denial of the hardship the American people are experiencing now health-wise, financially, and in every way. And Bernie Sanders standing up on the, and he was on Fox yesterday saying, President Trump is the worst Trump, uh, president in the history of mankind. But on this issue, $2,000 checks, he happens to be right. And so Bernie now is making a stink in the Senate saying, all we're asking for is a vote. What is the problem? If you want to vote against $2,000 checks for your state, vote against it. But of course, McConnell doesn't want to get that vote as a standalone because it would put Republicans in an impossible position. Having to vote against something that is very popular, you know, if you don't get into all the details about the, the spending that some people don't like, or the deficit, because this is more borrowed money. And where do you think that $2 trillion came from last March to um, get the first stage of coronavirus relief out? It came from the federal government borrowing more money. Uh, So Bernie's trying to get a vote. It's not going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. And people are going to have to make do with the $600 checks. But now you get into this question of, is this the liberal position? More money will stimulate the economy and help families in need. Because here's the Washington Post liberal editorial page coming out against uh, $2,000 stimulus checks. The Washington Post editorial page, and this has particularly been true on foreign policy, is not as liberal as that of the New York Times. And on this issue, I have to say the Post makes some decent points. In other words, if you're going to spend a lot of money to deal with COVID, what's the best way to spend it? 
So according to the Post editorial, the measure short-shrifted the neediest and showered billions on people who suffered little or no lasting hardship from the pandemic. This is talking about the $900 billion bill that did pass and saying that $2,000 stimulus checks would even make it worse. So the paper goes on to say that, first of all, the cost of boosting the payments to 2000 would be $464 billion. That's almost half a trillion dollars. That is eye-popping even by Washington standards. Uh, it would phase out, uh, if you go to the 2000, it would phase out completely only for families of five earning more than $350,000 a year. Well, I think a lot of people can would say if you're making $200,000 a year, $250,000, $300,000, $350,000, even if you've got three kids, you don't need a stimulus. Much of this is going to be saved anyway, not spent since restaurants are closed. Air travel is limited. The resources would be far better spent, according to the Washington Post, terms, both in terms of economic equity and economic growth, on longer extension of unemployment benefits and aid to state and local governments and vaccines. Um, but it's an idea whose time has come because of bad politics, not economics. President Trump deserves primary blame, says the Post, by criticizing the initial $600 per person version is too small threatening to veto the bill, which he ultimately didn't. That created an opening for Democrats in Congress who wanted to exploit the proposal's simplistic appeal to help their party's two candidates in Georgia's January 5th Senate runoff. So a dissenting view there from a generally liberal editorial page. Meanwhile, Wednesday is going to be a hell of a day in D.C. because President Trump is asking all kinds of people to come. You're going to have the Proud Boys here again. There's going to be demonstrations and probably counter-demonstrations all about the uh, formal acceptance by Congress of the Electoral College vote. And what happened yesterday is that Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican who probably most of the country is not even familiar with, got a lot more famous in one day by saying he, the first person in the Senate, the first Republican said it, he will object to the absolutely normal and routine congressional acceptance of the Electoral College voting in favor of Joe Biden. Now, there was simply no question, absolutely positively no question, I don't think even Holy uh, disputes this, that because this, the House is in Democratic hands and you would need both houses, no matter what happens in the Senate, Joe Biden will remain, after January 6th, the president who will be sworn in on January 20th. So why do this? Well, there's been a lot of talk about Hawley. He wants to cement the Trump base, and he's going to run for president in 2024. Uh, he said in an interview on Fox last night that he's not thinking about that. He also pointed out the fact that Democrats have done this as a symbolic protest, so why is everybody beating up on him? Now, it is true that in 2017, I saw a clip of Maxine Waters uh, refusing to acknowledge uh, Donald Trump's certification. But the difference there is Hillary Clinton, whatever excuses she may have made and whatever problems she may have had with the process, the day after election night, she conceded. She conceded election to Donald Trump. If you go back to 2005, when President Bush was reelected, Democrats... Um, were able to force the very debate that Josh Hawley uh, is trying to force. I don't have a big recollection of this because everybody knew it was going to fail. That President Bush was, in fact, had won the election. It was a close election as John Kerry. But the difference there, again, is it was largely symbolic, even though it tied up Congress for hours, because John Kerry had conceded 
to President Trump. He was not saying, uh, he was not doing what President Trump is doing, which is saying widespread fraud. I actually won and urging Congress to reject and urging state legislatures to reject the election outcomes. So that's what Hawley is saying. Um, McConnell didn't want this. McConnell was against this. So Hawley is bucking his own GOP leadership because this vote, which now it's going to be a roll call vote, and every Republican member of the Senate, and actually in the House too, I think, because you've got Louis Gohmert and others uh, supporting it on the House side, is going to have to take a vote that's going to make some people unhappy. Either you support President Trump because you're afraid that President Trump is going to engineer a primary against you in 2022 or 2024. You don't want to alienate the Trump base. And so you say, well, I went along with it. I, I knew Biden won, but, you know, I felt symbolically we should have a full congressional debate on election fraud. So you do that and you risk alienating a whole bunch of people who think that, look, even those who think in the Republican Party who think President Trump should have won, wish he'd won, you know, the more sane voices are acknowledging, McConnell among them, that the president has been unable to prove his case in a whole series of lawsuits, that Bill Barr's Justice Department was unable to find widespread fraud after uh, conducting investigations. And so you, you, you know, if, if, if this is looked back on as a stunt that was very bad and showed Republicans to be out of touch with reality, then those who voted for the Trump position, the Hawley position, will, will not look good with some of their constituents. If, on the other hand, Trump remains a kingmaker in 2022 and 2024, then voting against the Hawley resolution will not look good to a lot of Trump voters who, you know, as the president, as a candidate once famously said, would support him even if he shot somebody on Fifth Avenue. And the number two Republican in the Senate, John Thune, uh, told reporters he didn't think it made sense to go through this when you know what the ultimate outcome is going to be. Meanwhile, President Trump has made his feelings clear. He tweeted about these Washington protests January 6th, see you in D.C. He did that again yesterday. Um, so this is, uh, I actually think this creates more of a problem for Republicans than it does for Democrats who are going to get, in, in the end, they're going to win. There's going to be a Biden administration. I mean, if you don't believe that, uh, then you're not really following the reality of what's going on. Uh, at the same time, maybe, you know, maybe McConnell's looking out for his own skin because if Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue lose these Georgia runoffs, and there have been some polls showing that Democrats are ahead, and each of those Democratic challengers, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, have raised $100 million each. I mean, this has become a nationalized race, to state the obvious. Um, if the Democrats win both those races, I'm still skeptical of that. But if that were to happen, then come January 3rd, Mitch McConnell will be the Senate minority leader. So he may be thinking more about Georgia um, in the way he's handled both the stimulus checks business and this business. But the truth is, he didn't have a, a choice on this one. He wanted to avoid this. Josh Hawley defied the leadership. And so January uh, 6th in D.C. is going to be a very interesting day. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Now, before I go, in the interest of equal time, I let off the podcast the other day talking about Alec Baldwin's wife, Hilaria, and how she's kind of been exposed, I guess is the right word. Uh, she claims she's from Spain. That's what it says in her bio. She's gone on morning shows and spoken in a Spanish accent. Alec Baldwin says she's from Spain. Uh, she's bilingual. And yet she grew up in Boston. 
And so she, she says she visits family in Spain, but her mother grew up in Springfield, Mass. So all of this has just become absolute tabloid fodder. Well, she gave an 80-minute interview to the New York Times, and clearly this is damage control, playing defense, and all of that. Uh, and Hilaria Baldwin, or Hillary as she was born, told the New York Times, the whole thing is very surreal. She's just trying to live her life. So in the interest of equal time, here's what she says. She says she's bilingual. She speaks English with varying degrees of her Spanish accent, depending on how happy or upset she's feeling. So when she goes on, she's got the heavy Spanish, heavier Spanish accent. Maybe she's, it has to do with her mood. This is according to her. She didn't know that Hola magazine, for which she has twice posed for the cover, and has written 20 items about her on its English language website this year alone, repeatedly stating inaccurately that she was a Spaniard because she said she didn't re doesn't read any articles about herself. Okay, maybe that's true. She got confused about the word cucumber when she was on, I believe it's Good Morning America. Now, how you say in English cucumber? Not because she was faking it, because it was one of her first times appearing on live television and she was nervous. The exact phrase that she used was brain fart. Okay, I, get, I give her points for that. And her agent is CAA, the powerhouse uh, Hollywood agency. And in her bio, she said, well, she, I, you know, it says she's a Spaniard. Uh, she can only assume that CAA used unverified information to write a sloppy bio. She never looked at it. I don't know. It's a lot of coincidences to add up, but that is her version to the New York Times. I don't think it's the most important issue that we have dealt with in 2020 or even this week or even today. Well, that brings me to the point where um, we have to sign off at the end of 2020. I've had a lot of fun uh, doing this podcast. I've enjoyed seeing me, some of your comments on Apple iTunes, and I appreciate when any of you subscribe, whether it's Apple iTunes or Google Podcasts or Amazon Music or, or any of the rest. Um, what's refreshing for me is a couple of things. Um, when you write a column, sometimes people don't read the whole column. They see the, the summary, uh, summary on Twitter, and they make all kinds of judgments about you. When you have even an hour-long television show, you always have the ticking clock. you got to get to the next break. you got to... Um, Give everybody a chance to talk. And everybody who watches Media Buzz know I try to have different points of view, and that doesn't always plead the partisans. Uh, when I'm on as a guest, you know, I've got a three-minute segment, a four-minute segment. If you can cram in two or three points that people take away from it, that's good, too. But we are in an incredibly polarized environment. And it's been a really terrible year for the media. I have a lot of problems with the partisan coverage of COVID-19. Uh, I have a lot of problems with the partisan coverage of the urban riots. I have a lot of problems with the relentlessly anti-Trump coverage, or that at the same time, I think that the media have a, a absolute responsibility, and he, of course, announces that the profession is fake news, to hold the president accountable, whether it's his dealings with Ukraine, whether it's um, his continuing to push unverified or unproven accounts of election fraud, whether it's what um, all the different Trump controversies. But it's also true that the media have not cranked up everything to 11. So every single thing Donald Trump does is terrible, awful. And that's been very good for the media. It's been this paradox that will not be facing in the Biden administration when you, there will not be nearly the kind of access for reporters that President Trump has granted. But there won't be, and there won't be nearly uh, this kind of 24-hour um, news machine that will give journalists a lot less to write about. So nevertheless... There's a lot of pressure now, I believe, on journalists to hold Joe Biden to a high standard and not have it look like the last four years were just 
driven by a personal distaste for Donald Trump, a personal uh, vitriol for Donald Trump, or ideological disagreements with the Trump presidency. And so my point about the podcast is it gives you time. It gives you time to listen where you can make a more nuanced argument, where you can explain how you feel. And, you know, every single issue is not black and white. Sometimes I got to think about how I feel about this. Did President Trump uh, mishandle, especially in the early months, the coronavirus? Absolutely, positively. Um, did he mishandle Operation Warp Speed? Well, as I said at the top of the podcast, there are a lot of problems with the distribution, but the fact that we have two vaccines in a miraculous period of time, he got to get some credit for, and the media absolutely positively did not want to give him that kind of credit. So I think these are really good conversations. I know when I listen to podcasts, I like hearing people explain their position at length. Uh, you can agree, you can disagree, but it's a grown-up conversation, and I hope you have felt the same way. I really appreciate your listening. That's what makes this worth doing. I also appreciate when you read what I write, when you uh, watch what I uh, do on television. Um, I try to, uh, I also do radio commentaries, and you know, I try to adapt to every medium, try to reach people where they are. It's one of the reasons I spend a lot of time on Twitter and Facebook, particularly on Twitter, responding to people, not the, the people who just want to insult you and call you all kinds of names and insults that I would never repeat on the air. Uh, but people who, I try to respond to people who agree, uh, who disagree as well as agree, because I think that's part of the conversation. And I think that's one of the things that's been great about social media for all its flaws, for the, all the extent to which it has become a toxic sewer we can all now be part of the conversation. We're no longer in the days of three networks, a few national newspapers, and three national news magazines. Everybody gets to be part of the conversation. Everybody uh, gets to say their piece. And I think that's a great thing. I don't like the idea of people in the media business having a monopoly. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Thanks for reading. Have a happy New Year's Day tomorrow. Have a great New Year's weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday with more BuzzMeter. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.